This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is careful development of our testimonies. In the first half, Donald L. Hallstrom shares his address, The Heart and a Willing Mind. Then in the second half, Mark B. Colton speaks on Never Give Up on Your Testimony of the Gospel. Diane and I are thrilled to be in Provo, where we met 39 years ago. We are always edified by the spirit of BYU. Thank you for your kindness and gracious hospitality and for what you will teach us during our brief stay with you. We love and respect President Samuelson, a valued colleague and friend, and his dear Sharon. As we consider the intellectual, leadership, and most importantly, spiritual abilities of President Samuelson and those who administratively assist him, we know you are extraordinarily well-led at this university. We love BYU. It is a lustrous jewel in the crown of the Church. I wish to offer a brief insight into my life experience to provide some personal context for the subject I will address today. I was born in Hawaii when it was a territory of the United States, ten years before statehood. Raised in the islands in a multicultural environment, I left for higher education on this campus and then a mission to England. After marriage to a Canadian girl and our graduations here at this university, we returned to Hawaii to raise our family. My father first went to Hawaii in 1940 as a young missionary for the Church. He was there when the December 7th, today being an anniversary, 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor violently thrust the U.S. into war. He served three years as a missionary, went home to Salt Lake City, and joined the Army. After boot camp and officer candidate school, he married my mother in the Salt Lake Temple, and they were stationed in Hawaii. They spent the remainder of the war on Oahu in a tiny cottage where the windows were painted black so no light would shine through as a protection against enemy bombers. In 1945, they returned to Salt Lake City, stayed nine months, and then returned to Hawaii as a permanent home. My mother passed away in 2001, and my father died last year, both in Hawaii. When my father died, it had been nearly 70 years since he first arrived in the islands. I treasure my upbringing in culturally diverse Hawaii. It has significantly influenced my perspective of the equality of God's children. Ten years ago, after receiving a call as a general authority, we were assigned to the Asia-North area, which was then comprised of the countries of Japan and South Korea and included doing humanitarian work in North Korea. We lived in Tokyo and stayed three years in that assignment. After two years at Church headquarters, we then were sent to the Church's Asia area, which encompasses 25 countries and territories and over one-half the world's population. After four years of living in Hong Kong, we have now been back at Church headquarters for nearly a year and a half. In my current assignment, we assist the Quorum of the Twelve in supervising the Church throughout the world. 
With this growing perspective of the people of the world heightened by the fundamental purpose of my ecclesiastical responsibilities, I have spent much time pondering how the gospel is established in an individual life, in a family, in a country, and indeed throughout the world. The words of the Lord to the prophet Joseph Smith often come to my mind. Wherefore, be not weary in well-doing, for ye are laying the foundation of a great work, and out of small things proceedeth that which is great. The Lord, of course, understands the process of developing a testimony and of the combined force of sincere and righteous people necessary to build His Church in any area of the world. There are two ways the Church grows. First, by converts, of which there are hundreds of thousands each year. And second, multi-generationally, with children following the example of member parents. Both are essential to the future of the Lord's kingdom and complement one another, as the conversion of today is the multi-generational growth of tomorrow. In this audience, we have first-generation members of the Church, also second-generation, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and even those who represent the seventh generation of Church membership in this dispensation. For each of you first-generation members, there is a unique and significant story of how you came to your current place of spiritual commitment and understanding. For the rest of us, we have been blessed by the courage and humility of righteous ancestors who established a pattern for us to follow. To exemplify the doctrine that out of small things proceedeth that which is great, I tell you the story of Masako Kato. In 1951, when Masako was in her early twenties, she met the missionaries in her hometown of Yokohama, Japan, when she attended an English conversation class being taught by them. When the missionaries began to speak of spiritual things, she felt something and allowed them to begin teaching her about the Church and the restored gospel. During this time, both Masako's older sister and mother died within 30 days of each other. She was emotionally devastated but still attended the little branch of our Church in the area, even the week after her mother passed away. When the opening hymn was sung, The power of the Spirit brought her to tears, and she understood for the first time the eternal nature of life. Masako wanted to be baptized, but her father would not give her permission. Although she was of legal age, her respect for her father caused her not to proceed. However, she continued to attend the Church and participate like a member. The missionary suggested it would be good for her to share the glorious message she had come to know. Seemingly unafraid, even though the Church had little presence in Japan in 1951, she invited co-workers and even bosses at her company to come to church with her. 
A few came to social activities, but one, Shozo Suzuki, a very new employee of the company, came to Sunday meetings. He had a good feeling about what he heard and consented after a time to receive the missionary discussions. Masako also joined him for her second time through the lessons. After several months, Shozo accepted the challenge to be baptized. Masako again went to her father to seek permission, which he then gave because of the devotion he witnessed in her. On August 4, 1952, Shozo and Masako were baptized in the same service. One day, a few months later, a young missionary approached Shozo and Masako and suggested they consider marriage to each other. This surprised them, especially Shozo, as he had a non-member girlfriend. However, it prompted him to think about Masako, the person who introduced him to the gospel, in a different way than ever before. On April 29, 1953, they were married in a civil hall in Tokyo by the mission president. In 1965, they went to the Hawaii temple to be sealed as there was no temple in Japan until 1980. Brother and Sister Suzuki were blessed with nine children, six daughters and three sons. Seven of their children served full-time missions for the Church. Of the nine, eight married, all in the temple, and seven of their spouses served full-time missions. Brother Suzuki has served as a branch president, district president, mission president, Japan Missionary Training Center president, regional representative, and a patriarch in three stakes. With the singular beginning of diminutive Masako and now 54 righteous members of the Suzuki family, indeed, out of small things proceedeth that which is great. The same miracle is found everywhere in the world where the Church is established. It has happened or will happen in your own family. How does it happen? That question is answered in a companion verse to the one previously read. Behold, the Lord requireth the heart and a willing mind, and the willing and obedient shall eat the good of the land of Zion in these the last days. This doctrine is powerfully affirmed in the experience of Jesus with the Pharisee, who was a lawyer. The Pharisee asked him, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. So from these and other prophetic words, we understand that both the heart and the mind must be fully engaged in this holy process. The conversion of our soul and the ongoing refinement of our life as we adopt the attributes of godliness is our earthly mission and is rewarded with eternal life, which gift is the greatest of all the gifts of God. 
The heart is symbolic of love and commitment. Love is the most powerful motivator of all. We will make sacrifices and bear burdens for those that we love that we would not endure for any other reason, not for recognition, not for power, not for money. If love does not exist, our commitment will surely wane. If we love the Lord with all our heart, we are willing to give Him everything we possess. Elder Neil A. Maxwell said on this very campus, The submission of one's will is really the only uniquely personal thing we have to place on God's altar. The many other things we give to God, however nice that may be of us, are actually things He has already given us, and He has loaned them to us. But when we begin to submit ourselves by letting our wills be swallowed up in God's will, then we are really giving something to Him. There is a part of us that is ultimately sovereign, the mind and the heart, where we really do decide which way to go and what to do. And when we submit to His will, then we've really given Him the one final thing He asks of us." Unquote. Having a willing mind connotes giving our best effort our finest thinking, and seeking God's wisdom. It suggests that our most devoted lifetime study should be of the things which are eternal in nature. It says to me that there is an inextricable relationship between hearing the word of God and obeying it. The first word in the Doctrine and Covenants is hearken. It appears repeatedly in this book of Scripture which is a compilation of the doctrines, covenants, and commandments given in this dispensation. The meaning of the word is even specifically given in section 42. Again I say unto you, hearken, and hear, and obey the law which I give unto you." The Apostle James said in the same chapter as the sacred verse that was a catalyst to the boy Joseph Smith before his profound experience in the sacred grove, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Some of us hear selectively and do when it is convenient. One whose heart and mind are given to the Lord is consistent. Whether the burden is light or heavy makes no difference. I suggest five essential ways one can genuinely seek to give their heart and mind to the Lord. First, gain and constantly nurture your own testimony. A Latter-day Saint's testimony should include a knowledge of and love for God the Eternal Father, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, and the Holy Ghost. It would know of the glorious gospel plan and the centrality of the Savior and His Atonement. It would have an understanding of the marvelous work and the wonder of the restoration of the Lord's Church in this last dispensation 
and the role of apostles and prophets from Joseph Smith to Thomas S. Monson. If you do not feel the security and power that this knowledge brings, I ask you to study the exhortation of Baroni, often quoted by the full-time missionaries of the Church but not always followed by investigators. We read, And when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that ye would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth unto, of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. Take note that there are three essential requirements. Faith in Christ, a sincere heart, and real intent. Perhaps the least understood of these is real intent. In concert with the other conditions to receiving an answer, real intent means you are willing to do as directed. Consequently, if you are praying without a firm commitment to follow, it is unlikely that direction will come. 2. Honor priesthood ordinances and covenants. To help us progress, God asked us to perform priesthood ordinances. Ordinances are sacred ceremonies in which we make commitments to Him, and He confers upon us the potential to receive the blessings of eternity. As covenant children, we have all that is required for eternal success if we are true to our promises. Prepare for the ordinances yet to be performed in your life and be guided in your life decisions by the covenants you have made. When you are evaluating alternatives, ask yourself, Is this choice consistent with my covenants? Elder D. Todd Christofferson said, quote, The importance of having a sense of the sacred is simply this. If one does not appreciate holy things, he will lose them. Absent a feeling of reverence, he will grow increasingly casual in attitude and lacks in conduct. He will drift from the moorings that his covenants with God could provide. His feeling of accountability to God will diminish and then be forgotten. Thereafter, he will care only about his own comfort and satisfying his uncontrolled appetites. Finally, he will come to despise sacred things, even God, and then he will despise himself." End of quote. Please follow the rallying cry of the early pioneers as they were organizing themselves for the treacherous journey westward. And this shall be our covenant, that we will walk in all the ordinances of the Lord. When we live by covenant and not convenience, our lives are directed toward our heavenly home. Number three, root out duplicity. Duplicity is acting one way in public and another way in private. The purpose of our deception is to hide our sins. But as Jonah learned when he fled to Joppa, you cannot hide from God. 
Even to others, our deceit will be found out in time, and the damage caused to those closest to us may be irreversible. One way to test whether we have an eye single to the glory of God or a secondary eye to the evil of the world is to evaluate how we act when we are alone. What sites do we visit on the Internet? What television programs or DVDs do we watch? What kind of books or magazines do we read? Would we be comfortable in the same activities if others were watching? James taught a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Our deceit will affect every facet of our life, impairing our ability to progress in earthly and eternal relationships. Number four, continually study the doctrine. President Boyd K. Packer has said, The study of doctrine will change behavior more than the study of behavior will change behavior. When we know the commandments of God from the writings of the prophets and liken all scripture unto us that it may profit, that it might be for our profit and learning, it will change the way we think and act. Studying and following the counsel of living prophets is vital. Having prophets of God on earth has become so commonplace for us in this church that their profound importance and role is often woefully underappreciated. President Henry B. Eyring stated, Looking for the path to safety in the Council of Prophets makes sense to those with strong faith. When a prophet speaks, those with little faith may think they hear only a wise man giving good advice. Then if his counsel seems comfortable and reasonable, squaring with what they want to do, they take it. If it does not, they consider it either faulty advice or they see their circumstances as justifying their being an exception to counsel. President Eyring continued, Another fallacy is to believe that the choice to accept or not accept the counsel of prophets is no more than deciding whether to accept good advice and gain its benefits or to stay where we are. But the choice not to take prophetic counsel changes the very ground upon which we stand. It becomes more dangerous." End quote. And number five, establish a life of service. The Lord simply stated, If thou lovest me, thou shalt serve me. Still in my twenties, I was called to be the bishop of an 850-member ward. Two weeks prior, I, with a partner, founded a company that had just hired and was responsible for several new employees. At the time, my wife and I had three active children, ages one to seven. The daunting responsibilities to properly care for my young family the saints entrusted to my stewardship, and to create a viable business seemed impossible. As I now reflect on the events of the ensuing years, I am convinced that service to others, most importantly to my family, has been one of the great blessings of my life. Without the continual humility and life perspective that service engenders, the allure of the world could easily 
have entrapped me. Serving others emulates the ultimate act of service offered to each of us by the Redeemer of the world. It is a way for us to make partial payment for the opportunity of salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ. When I was young, we lived adjacent to the Honolulu Hawaii Stake Tabernacle, a magnificent facility completed in 1941. In September of 1954, a major meeting was held there. I was five and my brother was nine. Our mother had just returned from the hospital after giving birth to my parents' third child, a sister. So my mother was unable to attend the meeting. Our father had gone to the meeting early because of administrative responsibilities and was to sit on the stand. My brother and I walked down the lane on which we lived and over a small bridge leading to the tabernacle. We sat on about the tenth row in the large chapel. Presiding and speaking at the meeting was David O. McKay, then the president of the Church. I do not recall specifically anything that he said, but I vividly remember what I saw and what I felt. President McKay was dressed in a cream-colored suit, and with his wavy white hair he looked quite regal. In the tradition of the islands he wore a triple-thick red carnation lei. As he spoke, I felt something quite intense and very personal. I later understood that I was feeling the influence of the Holy Spirit. We sang the closing hymn. It is one that is still in our hymn book, but we do not sing it as often in the Church now. Who's on the Lord's side? Who? Now is the time to show. We ask it fearlessly. Who's on the Lord's side? Who? With those words being sung by 2,000 people, but seemingly just for me, I wanted to stand and say, I am. Are you on the Lord's side? Does He have your heart and willing mind? Four weeks ago, Diane and I stood on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, not far from Tiberias. In my mind, I could see Peter and six other disciples out fishing. The scriptures say they caught nothing all night. In the morning, the resurrected Jesus stood on the shore. But at first, the disciples did not recognize him. He asked if they had caught any fish. They said no. Jesus said, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They did so and caught so many fish they could not draw in their net. Peter then understood who it was on the shore, and he jumped into the water and swam to the shore. The other disciples came in a small ship, dragging the net of fishes. They began to cook the fish and eat them with bread. Then Jesus asked Peter what I believe is one of the most important questions in all of Scripture. Simon, son of Jonas, Lovest thou me more than these? Perhaps he was referring to the fish or the bread or some other earthly circumstance. But what the Savior was really saying was, Peter, do you love me more than you love the things of the world? Do you love the Lord more than the world? Does he have your heart and a willing mind? My dear young friends, 
during this critical time of higher education and transition from youth to adulthood, it is profoundly important that you establish a foundation of loyalty to the Lord, your very future, your family's future, and the future of the Church depends on it. I testify that the great plan of happiness is real. I witness of He whose plan it is, God our Heavenly Father, and He who is central to the plan, Jesus Christ our Savior and Redeemer. I testify of apostles and prophets who I know and love and gladly follow with all my heart and all my mind. I witness of these truths. They have made all the difference in my life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is careful development of our testimonies. We've just heard from Donald L. Hofstrom. After the break, we'll return with Mark B. Colton for Never Give Up on Your Testimony of the Gospel. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is careful development of our testimonies. Next is Mark B. Colton, Associate Professor of the BYU Department of Mechanical Engineering at the time of this address, titled, Never Give Up on Your Testimony of the Gospel. I recently received a very nice thank you note from a graduating student. After saying lots of nice things, he concluded by saying, Despite the fact that you graduated from the U, I think you're a great guy. (laughs) So don't worry, I am a great guy, and I'm thrilled to be here at BYU with so many great students and colleagues. I hope that all of you feel that way too. Last week, I had a great time with my son Tate and the rest of the teachers and priests from our ward on their annual high adventure trip. Among other things, we kayaked on the Green River and mountain biked in the LaSalle Mountains. One of the highlights of the trip was rappelling down a 175-foot cliff below a double arch. I'm not a great adventurer, and I'm definitely not an experienced climber. I have always had a fear of heights, and before last week had never rappelled. As I started the descent, the engineer in me started to think about how ropes can fray and carabiners can break. I know my fears were irrational, but there is some inherent danger in rappelling. Maybe a little healthy fear is a good thing if it helps me stay safe. Now, repelling isn't the only dangerous thing in the world. In fact, the world is basically a dangerous place. Here are some numbers that I read in an article some years ago that illustrate what I mean. You have a 1 in 11 million risk of dying from an earthquake or volcano. There is a 1 in 12 million chance you will die from leaking gas you have a 1 in 6 million probability of being injured in an elevator ride. There is a 1 in 23 million chance that you will die from drinking detergent. (laughs) Your risk of being infected with flesh-eating bacteria is 1 in 170,000. 
you have a 1 in 11,000 chance of being murdered, a 1 in 400 chance of being robbed, and a 1 in 50 chance of being burglarized. Certain risks depend on where you were born. For example, in the United States, you have a 1 in 100 chance of dying before the age of 5. In South Asia, on the other hand, you have a 1 chance in 8. Other risks have to do with whether you're a man or a woman. For example, men are 2.3 times as likely to die in a car crash and 3.3 times as likely to accidentally poison themselves. <laughs> Maybe with detergent, I don't know. <laughs> Women in the U.S., on the other hand, have a 1 in 12,500 chance of dying in childbirth. I'm sure some of you have wondered this. What are your chances of being struck by lightning this year? The answer is 1 in 750,000. And finally, a piece of good news. What are the odds that you'll be hit by a meteor? Only one in 150 trillion. <clears throat> now, the dangers are real, and they make me worry. Anyone who sent a daughter to her first day of school, dropped a son off at scout camp, or given the car keys to their teenager for the first time knows what I'm talking about. In preparation for all the dangers in the world, I want to sit my children down and tell them to look both ways before crossing the street and to chew their food carefully. I want to warn them to always wear seatbelts and to check their blind spot. I want to tell them to not talk to strangers and to avoid volcanoes. I want to urge them to play tennis instead of football. I want to warn them of the danger of drinking detergent. There is one danger, which was not listed here, that worries me most of all, and that's what I would like to talk about today. A few years ago, one of my colleagues came to my office to tell me some sad news about a mutual friend. He told me that our friend had chosen to leave the church because he no longer believed it was true. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. My friend was a strong member of the church, a returned missionary, a well-educated person from a good family, someone who had served in positions of responsibility in the church. And now he was throwing away something that used to be precious to him. I was surprised by how hard I took the news. I was shocked and sad, and my mind kept returning to my friend and his family. I wondered how this could have happened. How was it possible that someone who at one point had a bright testimony of the gospel and had shared it with others was now leaving the church because that testimony was gone? In my mind, it was a tragedy, and it affected me deeply. I'm sure some of you have been more deeply affected as someone close to you has lost their way and their faith. This is the danger that I worry about, losing one's testimony, whether through a crisis of faith or through a slow, subtle decline. Closely related to it is the danger of just getting by with a testimony that is inadequate or incomplete. I know that each of us will undoubtedly face challenges to our testimonies, and the danger is very real. Although I view what happened to my friend and others like him as a tragedy, this experience has resulted in one positive outcome for me. It has made me think about my own testimony and re-examine what I believe. I have looked carefully at what I am doing to keep and to strengthen my testimony, and I have made changes. The result has been great. As I have done those things that I know I must do to gain the kind of testimony that I want, I have felt the Savior's love for me and my testimony of Him and of the restored gospel has grown. My knowledge is still imperfect and incomplete, but it has been exciting to feel it grow from something that was good to something that is much better. What I want to share today is not just for those whose testimonies are at the point where they are considering leaving the Church or have already decided to do so. 
I assume that most people listening today are not in that category, but maybe some are. I also want to direct my comments to those whose testimonies are not as strong as they should be, or want them to be, to those who struggle with doubt or wonder about certain doctrines, to those whose questions prevent them from being able to declare with confidence that they know the Church is true, to those who go through the motions of Church membership for family or cultural reasons but haven't felt the warmth of a testimony for some time, to those maybe who find their belief and faith slowly drifting away and want to have them back. My thoughts today are for people who, like me, want their testimonies to be stronger and want to avoid the danger of letting them die. If I had to summarize in one sentence the key to keeping and strengthening your testimony, it would be this. You have to fight for your testimony. There are many things we're willing to fight for. Who has been willing to go to battle, figuratively, for something that they wanted badly? Who has put in long hours of hard study to get a needed grade on a final exam? Who has practiced diligently and passionately to master a sport or musical instrument? Who would put up a fight if someone were trying to steal something of value from them? Our testimonies are our most valuable possession, and someone is trying to steal them from us. Can you imagine what our testimonies would be like if we fought for them with the same tenacity with which we fight for other things in life? I think there are two reasons why we need to fight for our testimonies. First, we show our Father in Heaven how much we value our testimony and that we want to keep it. I believe He is more eager to give the gift of testimony to those He knows will cherish it, protect it, and fight for it. The second reason is that those things that constitute a good fight are also the things that will naturally result in a stronger testimony. I'm talking about prayer, study, fasting, and all of the tools that we already know to be the key to gaining faith and knowledge. We all know that we need to be doing these things. But when it comes to growing our testimonies, it's not enough to just do them. We need to do them with purpose and focus and consistency. Doing these things casually is not nearly enough when a testimony is in danger. If you are struggling with your faith and not receiving the testimony that you want, despite prayer, study, and fasting, I urge you to not give up. Do these things with renewed vigor. Make it a true fight. I feel very strongly that our Father in Heaven will reward those who fight for their testimony. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, who has said many great things about faith and testimonies, said, In moments of fear or doubt or troubling times, hold the ground you have already won, even if that ground is limited. He goes on to say, Hold fast to what you already know and stand strong until additional knowledge comes. So fight for your testimony that you have, and your testimony will grow. The next key should be obvious to everyone. Our Heavenly Father, through the Holy Ghost, is the only source of a true testimony. Moroni promises that after doing your part to obtain a testimony, Christ will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. And by the power of the Holy Ghost, you may know the truth of all things. No matter how impressive your learning, mastery of the scriptures, life experience, or logic and reason, only the Holy Ghost can impart the kind of testimony that lasts. We need to turn to God for confirmation of the truth. There's a corollary to that last statement. Although there is only one source of a true testimony, there are many sources of falsehood. About 11 years ago, our twins Max and Mia were two years old and we were living in an apartment while I was in graduate school. To my wife's horror, we discovered that there was a mouse in our apartment. We bought a mouse trap, put some peanut butter on it, 
and placed it next to a baseboard on the kitchen floor where we had seen the mouse. Two-year-olds and mouse traps don't coexist very well, so we took Max and Mia into the kitchen, pointed out the mouse trap, and explained to them how dangerous it was. We told them to stay away from it, to keep their fingers out, that it would hurt them. We even used our scary voices. No, don't touch, danger. A couple of days later, while most of us were sitting on the couch in the other room, we heard a snap and then a scream. We hurried into the kitchen and found little Mia with her fingers in the trap and her peanut butter on her lips. Brothers and sisters, there are many sources of falsehood in the world. Please don't put your fingers in those traps. Don't turn to them in your quest for a testimony. There have been and always will be intelligent, articulate people in the world that will try to convince you that the Church is not true, that God does not exist, and that anyone who believes that there is a God is foolish and naive. Don't go to those sources. Don't turn to people on the Internet who are seeking to destroy your testimony. Like with our twins, I want to point at those traps and tell you how dangerous they are. I want to tell you to stay away from them, to keep your fingers out, that they will hurt you. I want to use my scary voice. No, don't touch. Danger. You would never turn to an engineering textbook to learn accounting or play basketball to prepare for a final exam. It just doesn't make sense. Turning to other sources for understanding or to gain a testimony makes even less sense. Don't do it. It will open the door to deception and confusion. Some may think that if the Church is true, then our testimony should be able to stand up to anything that people can write about it on the Internet. Others might claim that we are told not to read such things because the Church is something to hide. These claims just aren't true. It has never been a question of whether the Church is true or has something to hide. It is about the cleverness and subtlety of the adversary and his ability to deceive and confuse. He teams up with clever people who are very convincing. Together they always find exactly the right wedge to drive into the cracks in our faith. Please don't put your fingers in that trap. The next key to getting the type of testimony that we want is to choose to believe. Elder L. Whitney Clayton stated, The decision to believe is the most important choice we ever make. Some may say that this is a naive approach to finding truth, that choosing to believe something won't make it true, but that's not what we're asked to do. We know that choosing to believe is the first step toward knowing if something is true. The Prophet Alma taught that we need to exercise a particle of faith desire to believe, and let the desire work in us until we truly believe. In the April General Conference, Elder Clayton emphasized the importance of choosing to believe. Belief and testimony and faith are not passive principles. They do not just happen to us. Belief is something we choose. We hope for it, we work for it, and we sacrifice for it. We will not accidentally come to believe in the Savior and His gospel any more than we will accidentally pray or pay tithing. We actively choose to believe, just like we choose to keep other commandments. As part of choosing to believe, we need to suspend our doubts so that our faith and testimonies have a chance to grow. I am not saying that we need to pretend that our doubts or questions don't exist. We just need to move them far enough to the side, as Alma said, to give place that a seed may be planted in our heart. As the seed grows into a strong testimony, our doubts and concerns will be pushed further and further to the side. They may not immediately go away, but the strength of your belief will render them insignificant until the day when all the doubts and questions will be resolved. We all have questions in life, many of which are unanswered. The next key to keeping our testimony strong is to not let those unanswered questions undermine our faith.
When the friend I spoke about left the church, one of the reasons he gave for not believing the church is true is that the data don't support it. We naturally want to understand how everything fits together, how science and religion agree, how church history and secular history match up. We want facts. We want proof. We want data. I understand. I consider myself a scientific guy. I want to understand how it all works. But I can't let what I don't know destroy what I do know. My scientific side, as important as it is, can't dominate my spiritual side. Regarding questions of faith, Elder Holland said, In this church, what we know will always trump what we do not know. And remember, in this world, everyone is to walk by faith. Elder Holland is telling us two things. We do know quite a bit about how things fit together. And for those things that we don't know, we're just going to have to get by on faith. This does not mean that we should stop thinking deeply and asking difficult questions. It is important for us to continue to ask questions, but we must do it using the enabling power of faith, assuming that answers will come, rather than under the stifling influence of doubt. I firmly believe that eventually all questions of science, religion, and history will be answered in full. Sometimes I draw strength from the fact that there are a lot of intelligent, educated people that have amazing testimonies of the Savior and the restored gospel. I think of the testimonies of President Irene and Elder Oaks and Elder Nelson. These are educated, intelligent, successful men, and they believe. I think of the testimonies of my friends, colleagues, and family. These people are smarter than me, and they believe. I think about President Irene's father, one of the most important theoretical chemists of the 20th century. He believed. He also nicely summarized the issue when he said, Some have asked me, Is there any conflict between science and religion? There is no conflict in the mind of God, but often there is conflict in the minds of men. Through the eternities, we are going to get closer and closer to understanding the mind of God. Then the conflicts will disappear. Remember that there are answers and there are reasons. God knows them and will help us to understand them if we don't let the unanswered questions undermine our faith. The next key is to follow Alma's counsel to experiment upon the word. In science and engineering fields, experiments are essential. Scientists perform experiments to understand phenomena, to test hypotheses, and to validate theoretical models. Experiments are designed to answer important questions. Some of my best friends are scientists. Dave Thompson in the Department of Physiology and Developmental Biology conducts experiments that test whether caffeine affects the ability of skeletal muscle to grow when it is stressed. Matt Seeley in the Department of Exercise Sciences has conducted experiments in which he injects saline into a person's knee to cause pain and then measures the change in the person's gait in response to the pain. Now, although that sounds cruel, without conducting these experiments, they would never be able to know the answers to their questions. My colleagues and I study how people interact with robots. In a recent project, we worked with students and faculty from the departments of computer science and communication disorders to explore how therapists can use robots to help children with autism. The therapists used the robot to engage the children in games, sharing activities, and songs with actions, such as popcorn popping. Although our results were not perfect, we found that for some children with autism, using robots can help them make improvements in important social behaviors. What if we had dreamed up a robot but had never built it to see how it worked? Or what if we had built the robot but never let the therapist use it in the clinic? Our work would have been useless. 
You can read all you want about a topic. You can think carefully about a research question. You can look at the theory and develop mathematical models. You can even look at other people's research. But until you try it out, until you get your hands dirty in actual experiments, you'll never get a definitive answer for yourself. The same is true for obtaining and keeping a testimony of the gospel. We need to experiment upon the word. Only by getting our hands dirty can we get a definitive answer for ourselves. In the Book of Mormon, Alma tells us the Lord's way of experimenting. We must desire to have a testimony. We must exercise what faith we have, even if it's very little. We must do those things that will make our faith grow, and then we watch carefully to see if it grows. But there's a problem. Whether they're scientific or spiritual experiments, experiments are hard. There's so much work. It seems, at least initially, that they never go exactly as planned. Sometimes it is because we're asking the wrong question. Sometimes we're not following the correct procedure. Sometimes we're not patient enough, and we miss out on the beautiful results that would have come had we just stuck with the experiment a little longer. Sometimes we need to repeat the experiment. I teach a class called Mechatronics, which culminates in teams of students building and programming small robots to compete against other teams. This class is a lot of fun but can also be really frustrating. Just ask the students. One of the frustrating things about it is the attention to detail that is required for circuits, motors, and sensors to actually work. Here's a common scenario in the mechatronics class. A student will come to me and tell me that a circuit that he built is not working, even though he connected everything exactly like he was supposed to. We'll then proceed to figure out what is wrong, checking all the connections in the circuit. At a certain point, I'll ask, did you connect the blank to the blank? He'll say that he did not, because that connection didn't seem critical. I'll point out that the data sheet, which is a set of instructions for the circuit, says that that connection needs to be made. It's not an optional connection, and the circuit probably won't work without it. When it comes to experimenting upon the word to gain a testimony, we need to conduct the experiments in the Lord's way. We need to complete all the required steps and make all the necessary connections to be successful. The steps include study, faith, prayer, and fasting. There's no other way to gain a testimony. If we leave one of the steps out, we can't reasonably expect to gain the testimony that we want. It just doesn't work that way. If the results do not come uh, right away, re-examine whether you are doing all the things that you need to do. Be patient. The Lord's experimental method works. He wants to give you an answer if you continue to fight your way through the experiment. Once again, don't give up. Let me add that to receive a true and deep testimony of the gospel, we must live in a way that we can receive a witness from the Holy Ghost. President Henry B. Eyring said this about the effects of unworthiness on our testimonies. One of the effects of disobeying God seems to be the creation of just enough spiritual anesthetic to block any sensation as the ties to God are being cut. Not only does the testimony of the truth slowly erode, but even the memories of what it was like to be in the light begin to seem like a delusion. If there are things in your life that prevent the Holy Ghost from being able to provide this witness, please fix them as part of your testimony experiment. Then the witness will come. The last key is to share your testimony, whatever stage it is in. My wife and I recently went to Singapore with a group of BYU engineering students. What a great experience. While we were there, I had two nice experiences as a result of people sharing their testimony. 
One of the highlights of the trip was attending church at the Clementi Ward. The members of the ward were so welcoming to us. But what impressed me most was how they focused on sharing their testimonies. The youth speakers shared their testimonies. The adult speakers shared their testimonies. The bishopric and instructors shared their testimonies. And no, it was not fast and testimony meeting. It strengthened my testimony, and it was refreshing to feel such a focus on testimonies. I'm sure it strengthened theirs as they shared them. While in Singapore, we also learned something interesting about Emily, our oldest daughter. She's really great at writing letters. Every night, we would look forward to reading her lengthy emails, which were informative, detailed, clever, and sometimes silly. She would tell us about what was going on at home and then tell us about each of her classes at school. On a number of occasions, she wrote about what she was learning in seminary. They were studying the martyrdom of the prophet Joseph Smith. In one of her letters, Emily shared with us her feelings about the prophet and about the ultimate price that he and Hiram paid for the restored gospel. I can't tell you how good that made me feel. Although she might not have known it, she was sharing her testimony. It strengthened mine, and I know it strengthened hers. I need to be more like that. I need to find simple ways to share my testimony of the gospel. Maybe it will benefit others, but it will certainly benefit me. Let me close with another beautiful statement by Elder Holland. I know this work is God's very truth, and I know that only at our peril would we allow doubt or devils to sway us from its path. Hope on. Journey on. Honestly acknowledge your questions and your concerns, but first and forever fan the flame of your faith. Brothers and sisters, I want to share my testimony of testimonies. I know that no matter where your testimony stands, our Father in Heaven wants to help you make it stronger. I know that whether you never had a burning testimony or have temporarily lost yours, He can help you find it. Whatever the source of your doubts or concerns, He can remove them. If you fight for your testimony and look to the only source of all truth, I know that you can have your own witness of the truthfulness of the gospel. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was careful development of our testimonies with thoughts from Donald L. Hallstrom and Mark B. Colton. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.